I would say that when I speak of classical education, that this needs to be the end goal of human life, the truth of things. What would be the alternative? If we're not pursuing truth, what are we pursuing? Lies? We're simply talking about what is real. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, and the show is presented by Ave Maria University. Today, I'm delighted to have Father Robert Sirico as our guest. Father Sirico is the President Emeritus and co-founder of the Acton Institute. He's a former pastor of Sacred Heart Parish in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he is the founder of the newly established St. John Henry Newman Institute for Classical Education and Reverend Liturgy. Welcome to the show, Father. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, glad to have you here. Uh, It's wonderful to see your kind of newfound uh, commitment to leadership and development in classical Catholic education. And maybe for, you know, listeners who have heard about classical education or are interested in Catholic classical education, uh, maybe you could begin by just saying, really, what is classical education? Well, as someone once said, it's just education, really. I mean, the the Mm -hmm. human person looks at the world and survives by looking at the world, by seeing what threats exist, what opportunities exist, Mm -hmm. how to sustain life, how to be productive, how to maintain relationships. All of these things are a process of knowing. That's what human beings do. We're homo sapiens. We know. We're beings that know. And... uh, What classical education is, is that distilled process that comes down from Aristotle and the classical world Mm -hmm. that's filtered through and and I think distilled in many ways through uh, the Catholic refinement uh, that built the um, Western civilization. I I think Mm -hmm. if I was going to say one thing, because much can be said and has been said about uh, classical education, is that it seeks not to put facts into the heads of people, Mm -hmm. but to teach people how to know, how to learn. Mm -hmm. It's not teaching you what to think, but how to think. And when you accomplish that in the heart and the mind and the soul of of a person, that person can thrive, can flourish. Wow, that's uh, so well put. And, you know, and and maybe if we're describing what is properly education now by the adjective classical education uh, that kind of suggests, right, that education has somehow been perhaps hijacked or at least confused that we have a right. another version of education yes. that is kind of prevalent yes. uh, in, our, in our modern Western society. Uh, what would you describe that kind of counterfeit model of education? Well, uh, let me say, first of all, I am not a professional educator. I was not trained Mm -hmm. in the whole, and maybe that's a good thing, you know, maybe that's why I can see this thing in a way. But um, at least in the United States, and and I think in other countries, and it really it's derived from from other currents uh, internationally, Mm -hmm. uh, in the United States, the Dewey system, this whole utilitarian approach to education, yeah. Uh, the idea that we have to take these children from their parents and uh, instill in them a certain set of ideas that will make them useful uh, tools in the uh, society yes. uh, under the guidance of the state. I, I think that's generally that generally describes what public education, again, now I'm speaking in the United States context, has become. Uh, and you have the interests of unions, and many people have seen and remarked on how uh, the policies of the educational establishment are really geared toward the satisfaction of the demands of teachers and the unions that represent them. This is not, of course, all teachers, mm-hmm. but the, the whole system that exists. And uh, the resistance, the um, suspicion of families, parents that want to come in and guide uh, a child's education. Um, I would say that when I speak of classical education, it is the antithesis of all of that. 
Mm. Uh, it is not utilitarian in that the the purpose, the end goal of the educational process, the educational formation, is not that a, a person is useful, but mm-hmm. that a person flourishes in in all of his or her dimensions, uh, and that the family is an essential part of that formation process because who knows the child best the family do families make mistakes of course they do certainly educators Mm -hmm. make mistakes but when you have a a classical understanding of what makes for um, a life worthy of the human person then i think you can have this relationship where the family becomes part of the whole process Mm -hmm. Uh, of yeah. the education of the child. I think that's really a helpful way of putting it because by showing in a way that, uh, right, John Dewey uh, and in the U.S. and even before that, John Locke right. uh, in, in mm-hmm. England uh, were, they were focusing on a good, mm-hmm. you know, social utility, mm-hmm. uh, having, you know, people that can be trained for work, for societal functions is a good thing. It's just not the whole good. Right. It's not the highest good. And when we make it the highest good, yes. uh, we end up leaving something out. And you know, you, uh, your new institute's uh, named after John Henry Newman, who's now a saint in the Catholic Church. And in his idea of the university, exactly. as I'm sure you know famously, he, he distinguished his approach from Locke's right. of education. Education is not merely about utility, but it's about something greater. And, and I think one of the things we can forget when we talk about this idea of like trying to train people for professions or train people for jobs is that greater than usefulness is truth. Right. So how would you say in a way kind of classical education is connected to truth? It's all about, it's all oriented to the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how odd it is that that very notion that that accepted notion what was accepted Mm -hmm. should be under such sustained attack and we see it repeatedly i mean it's it's i don't want to say classically formulated because (laughs) it isn't classically formulated it's typically formulated in the modern discussion and we've all heard it well that's your truth that's not my truth Mm -hmm. what does that mean i mean if you really look at this rejection of the capacity of the human mind to apprehend truth, which mm-hmm. isn't to say that the human mind has the capacity to be uh, omniscient, but that can uh, uh, apprehend certain truths, that that's how we survive uniquely mm-hmm. in this world, uh, that this needs to be the end goal of human life, the truth of things. Yeah. What would be the alternative? <laughs> I mean, if, if, yeah. if we're not pursuing truth, what are we pursuing? Lies, you know, the, the opposite of the truth. I mean, it's reality. We're yeah. simply talking about what is real. And if you want to say, well, there are different meanings and there are different um, uh, opinions about what constitutes a good life. Okay. And on what basis are we going to adjudicate those claims? Yeah. Reason, would, yeah. truth. Yes. How would you respond to people who are concerned that a classical education in their children's school would... Uh, be impractical or leave them unprepared? Well, certainly just from the point of view of business leaders, uh, what we've seen now, and it's reported in all the major business magazines, Forbes mm-hmm. and, uh, and the rest, uh, that uh, managers uh, and uh, CEOs prefer to have people who have a full comprehension of the thing. Because if they just have a, a very narrow view of their task, they become brittle mm-hmm. and can't relate to the information they have to have command over and yes. how it relates to the overall functioning mm-hmm. of a business. And that's precisely what classical education prepares a person to do, how to think about a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also more, more satisfying. It makes for uh, better human beings uh, in that sense. So, uh, the classical approach doesn't disregard utility. It just mm-hmm. sees utility as integrated into the whole of what things are. Wow, that's that's so well put. So ultimately, in a way to really maybe determine what is really useful for human beings, it's also helpful to know the truth about human beings. Exactly. Uh, and because we are not merely kind of 
habit. We're not merely beings that do things by rote or by instinct. Right. Since we have the capacity for reasoning, also having an education that helps us to practice our reasoning skills in a like ever increasing, of course, very slow adjustment to reality. Right. Turns out then we become possibly in the long term more practically yes. efficacious. Yes. Because we have a better understanding of reality, but also yes. a better understanding of our own mode of how we have to work yes. to come to understand the world and one another. Precisely. I mean, the, the thing that makes human beings distinct from animals is that animals are bound to the material world by their instincts. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Human beings, while we have instincts, are m- more normatively bound to the material world by our reason, by our minds, by how we see things. And the the phrase that we've all heard, uh, a renaissance man, mm-hmm. what does that mean? It means a person who is well-rounded, uh, a person who can take into consideration various uh, dimensions. If you, if you want to talk about um, pluralism and diversity, I mean, the, the, the true uh, renaissance man is the person who takes into account all the diversity of the factors that go into making mm-hmm. up reality. And, and at, for that very reason can be, um, have the capacity to more profoundly critique himself yeah. uh, and to check his own premises. Mm-hmm. That's really uh, just wonderfully uh, put. Uh, Father, would you tell us a little bit about, you know, how did you, you didn't plan to get into classical uh, Catholic education. Tell us a little bit about your own story and uh, how this came about. Well, uh, you know, from when I was first ordained a priest, of course, I'm involved in pastoral ministry, but uh, very early in my priesthood, I began the Acton Institute, uh, which is an attempt to um, understand the economic dimensions of human life mm-hmm. and the moral claims that it has on the human heart, the, the the vocation of business that people have. It's mm-hmm. underappreciated, the need for a limited state and all of this. Yes. Uh, but it wasn't formed as an organization that merely taught those principles, but really educated educators. It, it helped to okay. form leadership mm-hmm. so that those principles could be carried into the various spheres. A lot of people miss this when they think of the Acton Institute. They mm. think it's, it, we're certainly not a policy institute. We're certainly not, we're not even a Catholic institute. We're ecumenical. Uh, we're not a political uh, organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a uh, process of learning and of enabling others to learn and build leadership. People miss that about what Acton is. So I've had a lot of experience over 30-something years of uh, helping uh, people become better leaders. Um, as I say, all during that time that I was the uh, president and co-founder of the Acton Institute, I was a priest. I was a functioning priest in various pastoral capacities, parishes and, and the like, chaplaincies and things like that, um, until... About 10 years ago, we, I went to a parish, and the idea there was that I was going to be a senior priest in residence, and there was a younger priest who was going to be uh, the pastor. It was his first pastorate, and that I would be there guiding him. The parish had a school. I had never had a parish mm-hmm. that had a school before. Um, been in and out of all kinds of schools, but had never had responsibility for school. As it turned out, it didn't work out for this young priest. He went he went elsewhere, and I wasn't supposed to be the, because I had all these other responsibilities. Mm-hmm. I was just going to be there helping. I wasn't supposed to be the pastor, but uh, to make a very long story short, uh, I saw that this place everybody was looking at as a failure. It was a parish that was in uh, financial difficulty, an aging process, a dying school, a mm. decaying building, uh, uh, ill-coordinated staff. Wow. But there was something in it that mm-hmm. I saw had um, potential. And I said to the bishop, I, I want you to make me pastor. And he thought I was crazy. He said, <laughs> you, know, you have a lot of work yes. to do. Why don't you just... You know, just, well, you can help out on the weekends in a parish. I said, no, uh, let me have this. And so I suppose he held his breath and said, okay. And he didn't, it wasn't like he had a lot of people standing in line to take this parish. (laughs) 
So he did. And um, as I came in, as I went into that position, he said, there's this school here, he said, but uh, it's going to have to close. All the schools in this area of Grand Rapids had closed in this, the west side of Grand Rapids. Um, and I said, well, let me, let me take a look at it and see what's mm-hmm. there. And I saw that there were not so much, though in the school there were some people who were very good, uh, in the parish there were other people who were on the periphery of the parish, who weren't leaders in the parish, mm-hmm. but I thought had real capacity to become leaders in the parish. And so um, I said, okay, we're going to transform the school. I said, either we're going to transform or we're going to close it. And I held a meeting with the whole parish. Now, this particular parish had the blessing, the hidden blessing, which was viewed uh, by the previous, and, and, and most priests would view mm-hmm. a lot of homeschoolers as a, a drag. Because there's this assumption, if I'm the pastor of a parish that has a school and I have a bunch of homeschooling uh, families, they should be in my school. And so you're taking away from my school. Yeah. That mm-hmm. That's the mentality going in. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it that way mm-hmm. because I presume that the parents are acting for the best formative process for their children. So I asked the question from a different point of view. What are we not doing that, you know, which isn't to say that people don't want to have their kids in their home. Yeah. But especially as they, they get older, it becomes more difficult. Mm-hmm. So I asked the um, parents what they needed. I listened to that and decided that we were going to refound the school. It had been started in 1902 uh, in this largely ethnic area uh, just off from the inner city, mm-hmm. uh, Polish working class neighborhood. And uh, we refounded it. And the, the first decision I made was the simplest, and that was that the kids would go to mass every day. Mm. <gasps> wow. Isn't that something? Well, why is that a burden mm-hmm. to think that kids will go to mass? We have mass every day in the parish. Well, we, we had to adjust the, the time by 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. But they began going to mass every day. And by that, I uh, didn't, don't mean that it was going to be a children's mass. It was the parish mass. And any good preacher looks at the congregation and preaches to that congregation and so there are things that are applicable to kids, but the things that are applicable to kids are applicable to adults as well if you yes. translate it properly. Anyway, to make a long story short, we did that. We introduced uniforms for the entire school, including the teachers, which uh, immediately eliminated the uh, uniform debate, which I, mm-hmm. goes on in schools. Yeah. And then I heard also that you did a um, you did a special thing where you got all the the first uniforms donated donated by somebody here in uh, yeah. Ave Maria. Yes, right. So to take out the kind of the financial burden for the first time, yes. yeah, the first yes. hit, mm-hmm. you know, so get they, people used to seeing uh, the benefits, right? And then they became distinct, you know, in mm-hmm. Grand Rapids when they'd go to the grocery store. Oh. What's that? What school do you go to? You mm-hmm. look like you're an English school child, you know, uh, Hogwarts. You know, <laughs> it, it's just a black blazer and yes. gray trousers, you mm-hmm. know, the kind of thing like that. So uh, I also moved out the public school teachers that were allowed to teach in our school in Michigan because I had no control over who they were. Okay. Um, and also what particularly irked me was the contract to have these public school teachers required that the classroom be denuded of any religious symbols. And I said, that's just not going to happen. The statue of Our Lady was in the closet, in the, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. It was, I said, that's not going to happen. And that, of course, had financial consequences because we had to replace those teachers. I also let go of the, um, the uh, hot lunch program, the federal hot lunch program, uh, because I was concerned that the entanglement with the federal government would mean that we would be under certain mandates, particularly at that time, the debate was over the use of bathrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, it's just not going to happen. And if we don't have any attachment to state money, then, then we're not going to have any required. Or that's going to be a whole other level. When, when I eliminated the uh, hot lunch program, somebody asked me, well, who's going to feed the kids? And I paused and I said, how about their parents? Mm-hmm. You know, which mm-hmm. refocuses it on the parents. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, so you know, I said, look, I always have peanut butter and tomato soup in the rectory, which was my favorite meal. <laughs> peanut butter and jelly and tomato soup was mm-hmm. my favorite uh, lunch meal. 
it all went smoothly. By the way, we saved money on the federal lunch program. Uh, and the elimination of those teachers and then a number of other teachers, when they saw the direction we were going, they said, we're going to take our retirement now, enabled us to choose teachers and begin. And this is the key. This is the key. It's not the curriculum. The curriculum is important. But the key is the culture of the school, the prayer, the invitation of parents to kind of come by. And then all of these homeschooling parents watching this happen began coming. And we created a program for them to come just two or three days a week so that they could acclimate to the school. And if they wanted mm -hmm. to send the kid full time, we would do that. And that's what has happened. We still have a large number of homeschooling parents, but it's not this division. They come to sporting events. They come to entertainment mm -hmm. events that we have. Uh, uh, so it's, it's this kind of unified thing. And the other thing I told the parish is we can't view the school as its own entity, as its own world. It is the largest apostolate of the parish. This wow. is our means yes. for evangelizing mm -hmm. all of these families. And that's what it's become. And it's just been so integrated and holistic, which is a key element of what classical education is, integration. Yeah. Wow. So this interest in education then came about really from the your lived experience and practical necessity. Absolutely. Of, I have not had a seminar on how into, to do this. Yes, when I yes, hired the headmaster, he's a retired federal uh, prosecutor. Mm -hmm. The uh, superintendent of the school said uh, to me, uh, the whole school system in the diocese said, um, but he doesn't have an education background. He doesn't have an education degree. I said, that's right. I said, I didn't want somebody yeah. with an education mm -hmm. degree. I wanted somebody who knew how to do things. Yeah. who could just really mm -hmm. get it done. And he's he's done that. He's grown the school. Okay. We started at 68 students. And today, as I talked to, we have 400 students in the school. Wow, 10, 10 years, 10 68 years. 68 to over 400. And what it has done to the parish. Uh, this And not all the people are involved in the school, mm -hmm. but this is this whole vibrant culture in the neighborhood that it's, it's really quite incredible. This whole area mm -hmm. of Grand Rapids is new and revived. Wow, that's amazing. What have you done to... Uh, specifically integrate parents into right the educational process that you carry out in this kind of new culture and new curriculum? Well, I mean, I, I suppose we do what most schools do. You know, you have a parent-teacher thing, yes. the board. Mm -hmm. We have them on the board. But it's also attitudinal. The, the, the mm -hmm. teachers welcome the input of the parents. Okay. We've had very mm -hmm. little disturbance from parents. Uh, you know, the, the stereotypical cranky parent who wants to run the whole school. Mm -hmm. We just haven't experienced that much. And, mm -hmm. and the culture there doesn't permit for that because it's not like the pastor or the teacher has to take that in hand. The other parents will take that in mm -hmm. hand. And say, no, we, we don't agree with that or something yeah. along those lines. We mm -hmm. try to accommodate uh, to the extent possible, uh, work with the parents, because, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a serious belief that the parents are the first educators of the kids. They, they're the ones who are going to have to stand before God first and foremost Yes, for how their kids yeah. have been formed. Well, that's, a, that's really amazing. It's a wonderful story. That's really a sign yeah. of hope uh, for the renewal of Catholic education. In I the just United fell into States. it. Honest to goodness, I just fell into it. Yeah, what a blessing. Um, we're going to take a short break. And um, afterwards, I'd love to for you to tell us a little bit more about maybe how parents, adults, uh, people who maybe didn't get the benefit of a Catholic education, of a genuinely classical education, right, might be begin to do so as adults, mm -hmm. uh, but we'll take a break now. Okay. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support. And now, let's get back to the show. So, Father Sirico, uh, I had mentioned that I run into lots of parents uh, who kind of discover the richness of classical Catholic education, uh, sometimes even grandparents or, you know, single people who 
didn't get to experience it either in you know uh, grade school or in college, uh, what would you suggest to them? How can they uh, tap into the kind of roots of this classical Catholic education? Well, I think um, there's certainly a, a whole number of books uh, that they could read if they're inclined to do mm-hmm. that. There are also uh, websites. We've just launched a website. Now, it's just beginning. Mm-hmm. Our whole effort, the St. John Henry Newman Institute, uh, is uh, just um, beginning. And yeah. we have uh, links on there to to texts that mm-hmm. could help people. You know, I would urge people not to overthink it, not to think mm-hmm. that this is going to be so highly sophisticated and mm-hmm. incomprehensible. It's just common sense. It's just... Mm-hmm what human beings do, and then we just build on what mm-hmm. we do. And uh, we, we come to understand things in relationship to other things that we learn. Mm-hmm. So uh, the one fear I have is that, you know, classical education, you talk about the great books. People say, well, I was bored of reading Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe you weren't taught how to read it properly. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't shown mm-hmm. to you in, in its holistic form properly or uh, how to to write a sentence Uh, you know uh, I'm I'm gonna go to these uh, uh, literary references more easily because my undergraduate degree was in English and speech communications Mm -hmm. Um, but those kinds of things as well as science and how we can break things down it's just a natural part of who we are so I think that's one of the ways to do it the other way to do it is to find a, a school that's doing this mm-hmm. and sit in on a class and just listen to the discussions and how the discussions, you're going to find an overlap to uh, education today. I mean, and yes. we're reading mm-hmm. books and discussing them, but you'll find a different orientation, a kind of a different um, end goal that we're mm-hmm. moving toward rather than just the practical level. Yeah, I think it's, uh, in, in part, it's a willingness on the part of the person just to recognize that I want to learn more right. and that I can learn more. The idea that we, there is a truth and other human beings have seen parts of it. Right. And the more willing I am to learn from them, instead yes. of looking at Shakespeare, so to speak, it's like the text itself as what I'm looking at and studying as if it's putting it under a microscope. You see, well, Shakespeare is understanding, is trying to articulate understandings about the human person. Yes. And what is it about the stories that grab us? And so we start seeing it as a, um, like a story we're entering into. Exactly. Right? What do you do uh, with injustice? How do you bear trials how do you uh find joy handle and betrayal and humor and, yeah. and these sorts of different things and then right the classics i go back to i remember reading uh homer's odyssey and iliad when i was nine in ninth grade and uh which in covers in some ways is funny this is in public school and this wasn't that long no, ago. No, right. right? 35 right. years ago, I'm reading yeah. those in public schools which is right now you'd only be reading them in a classical school so this right. is just kind of partly um, just kind of part of the oddity. Yeah, you, you say to these kids, who's Homer, who's yeah. Leonardo, who's, the, yeah. you know, and they think these are, are um, I've forgotten the name of the, the characters. Oh, the, <laughs> the Teenage Mutant Ninja, Ninja Turtles. Mutant Ninja yes. Turtles. These, these, <laughs> they, they, that's who Michelangelo is, you yeah. know, to them. Or Homer Simpson, you know, that's, yeah. that's what they think. And yeah. my goodness, what a loss. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. even the pun on those names is lost to the kids, mm-hmm. you know, because, of course, sure. we know yeah. these are puns. Yes. Yeah. This is the thing I always appreciate about the Muppets yeah. is they, they, the old Muppets, not mm-hmm. the new Muppets. The old Muppets had these reference points yeah. that adults could appreciate mm-hmm. that the kids were being drawn into. Yeah. And that's why adults and children could watch the Muppets, the old Muppets mm-hmm. together. Yeah. Uh, and we, we're losing that, completely losing that. Yeah. Even okay. cursive. Even the use, mm-hmm. I, I never thought of it, but I, I heard a report recently, I'm sorry, on public radio, mm-hmm. um, but it was, it was very interesting. It's like another language. People can't read. Young people mm-hmm. can't, some young people can't read cursive. 
It's like, you know, if we put Chinese in front of oh. you or me, we, we would know what it was saying. So if they're letters from grandparents or something, they can't read them. That's it. And documents, mm-hmm. historic documents, they can't read the Gettysburg Address, you know, as a document mm-hmm. or the Constitution. I mean, this is, think of the the ramifications of this. Wow. Uh, that's really, it, it is an interesting sense of one of the things that education does is pass on a culture. Exactly, uh, And by us having common reference points uh, within our cultural vocabulary, uh, that, that allows us to have kind of a shared, a shared communion, right? A, Commune, a community requires kind of a common communication. Right. It's a common grammar. Yeah. So that we understand the mm-hmm. grammar. May, may speak in different dialects of that mm-hmm. grammar. But, yeah. but and, and just to go a little deeper in this, this is what makes communication possible. Even mm-hmm. even disagreement possible, you know. T- today, people yeah. don't generally disagree. They just yell at one another. They they mm-hmm. denounce one another. Mm-hmm. They cancel one another. They cut off communication. Why? Because they don't know. They don't have a grammar. They don't have a a means by which they can disagree. You look at some of the old debate shows. I'm thinking of Firing Line with Bill okay. Buckley. Uh, he had on that program any number of people who who disagreed with him on things. They'd go for a solid hour mm-hmm. of uh, sometimes vibrant disagreement, mm-hmm. but never canceling, never stopping the conversation. They just probed it more deeply. Mm-hmm. We don't have that capacity today. People speak in wow. in in sound bites rather than reason their way through something. Mm-hmm. And you could, could you say more about that? I think that. Maybe sometimes people think that, you know, classical education is uh, monolithic, as though it speaks with one voice, as though it shuts down disagreement and conversation. So could you expand more? Yeah, no, again, it is not what you're thinking. It's the way you process information and knowledge and apprehend uh, the truth of things. So that, uh, for instance, my area is economics. I yes. have certain views about the economy and the importance of having a free economy and a minimal state. There will be other people who think classically about these things. They say, no, uh, the free economy you're describing is deleterious because it promotes um, materialism, mm-hmm. consumerism, and all of this. Now, if they're classically oriented and I'm classically oriented, we can have that conversation. Well, what do you mean by this? But don't we have to limit the state? Yes, we have to limit the state, but not in certain areas. And what is the common good? And then we mm-hmm. define those things. And then you have a real debate going on. Mm-hmm. Rather than you're just a blood-sucking capitalist. No, you're just a blood-sucking socialist. And then the conversation ends with, Yes. caricatures and, and mm-hmm. uh, stereotypes. Yeah, I'm reminded of, uh, I think it was the great Catholic moral philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, uh, who said that, right, a tradition is kind of the living argument about the good of the tradition. Exactly. And so because the goods within the tradition are complex, multifarious, you have, right, the goods of the family, the goods of the person, the goods of the society, mm-hmm. the goods of the school, the goods of the uh, defense, right. right? The goods of the roads, <laughs> the goods of yeah. the trees. I mean, all sure. sorts of different goods. Uh, and then you adjudicate them by discussing and arguing about their relative importance. And the argument itself is important. Yes. You know, the mode of yes. argument. The, the fact that um, people will say, I don't want to have an argument. Uh and I, I found this more and more. People mm. don't want to have discussions where they have disagreements. Um, and, and that's not brand new. I mean, there was always mm. don't discuss politics and religion. I mean, where mm. would my life be if I wasn't discussing politics <laughs> and religion? These are great ideas. Yeah. It, they, everybody thinks that an argument, not everybody, but, but a lot of people think that an argument is a fight. And it doesn't need to be in, yeah. antagonistic. Mm-hmm. It, it can be in um, vibrant and forceful without being uh, irrational. Mm-hmm. And that is what is happening today that, that is unnerving in what's called woke society. I mean, one of the characteristics of woke society is this process of canceling people or dismissing people or shouting people down. You see this 
repeatedly in demonstrations where they want to shout people down rather than prove that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Here, here's why you're wrong. No, shut up. Yeah. No, I want to mm-hmm. prove why I'm right or why I'm wrong or why you're right or why you're mm-hmm. wrong. Um, and I think that's a hallmark of the anti-classical mm-hmm. uh, approach. So to the things. common culture in a way that the, the community that is helped, that is developed partly by a common classical education uh, is actually right, a living tradition yes. of a discussion because in a way we will settle our disputes about goods one way or the other because we have a limited amount of resources and we're either going right. to settle those disputes by power right or by discussion by, by reason. reason yeah it's really reason or power and it so is. the classical education invites people to be able to discuss and to kind of consider standing alongside one another even if they're in disagreement right considering a, a reality greater than themselves and how best, right? And, you know, so we can still make judgments of truth, judgments about morality, uh, but we also recognize that as we're trying to apply those judgments in particular situations, that there might be a variety of solutions yes. to yes. complex questions. And partly classical education is helping people yeah. to discover that. And what you've just described, that whole atmosphere that that, mm-hmm. that uh, engages differences and stuff, is the greatest of liberality, liberalism, mm-hmm. in the true sense of the word, that people have the freedom to understand um, that people are going to disagree with me, and I am going to be um, tolerant in, in the right understanding of what tolerance is. Uh, tolerance has come to mean uh, agreement with things, but that's not obviously you don't tolerate something you agree with. You agree with it. Mm-hmm. You tolerate something you don't agree with. And that's the point of contention in much of the modern culture now is that I don't have the right to disagree with you. I don't have the right mm-hmm. to disapprove of you. People are so afraid of being disapproved of. Uh, and I think the, mm-hmm. the reason for that is that reason has gone out the window. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if a, you know, I've had people tell me, well, you know, you're, you're a papist and Catholic, you're going to hell. Um, it doesn't crush me. It doesn't <laughs> destroy me. Uh, maybe it mildly offends me or mostly bemuses me. Um, but I don't seek to stop the person from saying that. I, I, I'd like to engage the question and turn their ideas to the right. But that can only occur for having a, a conversation about it. Yeah. So your new institute is about classical education and reverent liturgy. Yes. So what would you say, I mean, how do this conversation about classical education, which is larger than Catholic education, yes. uh, how does that kind of interact with, like how is it that classical education maybe, is, does it, is it at home in Catholic education? What's its what's the relationship between you know our Catholic faith and passing on the Catholic faith in education and classical education? Well, it's most at home in in the Catholic faith, I think, because of the the way in which Saint Thomas Aquinas uh, and even before Aquinas um, uh, approached the classical world. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't this notion of um, we're going to eviscerate you, the stereotype of the, the Orthodox Christians, we're going to uh, burn you down. And, mm-hmm. and uh, what we did was adapt. We, we took over pagan cathedrals or pagan mm-hmm. uh, places of worship and Christianized them, mm-hmm. uh, this process. Uh, and likewise with the classical literature, uh, it, it did this. I mean, uh, Aquinas adopted and applied and we would say refined and purified Aristotle's ideas. And so I think what what happens uh, with regard to the Christian faith in the context of classical education is that it exalts, it, it uh, lifts higher mm. the, the understanding mm-hmm. of who the human person is as seen through the lens of Jesus Christ. In the Second Vatican Council, the phrase... Um, uh, about anthropology and Christology being reciprocal, that we understand man to his fullest extent by understanding Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think that becomes part of it. And then naturally worship 
the, the importance of liturgy. Um, just, just to take it out of this realm of more abstract theorizing, um, one of the great challenges to young people today is distraction, owing largely to uh, digital, you know, the, the phone uh, and the iPad and all the rest of it. Uh, and kids are constantly, I mean, we, we're affected by it. Uh, yeah. The advantage of, of older folks is that we had some habituation to a different way of sitting with a book and grappling with uh, a long paragraph and, you know, with subordinate clauses yeah. and all the rest of it. Kids don't have to do that today. If they're left on their own, they're, they're just reading headlines and what they want to read. And when they're um, bored, they go to something that's more amusing. Worship calls on us to be silent and to allow something to emerge from that silence, mm. this contemplation. This. And in our school, uh, I saw the effects of that, uh, and the teachers will confirm this. You know, they'll, they'll be at a, a liturgy that will last 45 minutes at least, and maybe on a feast day, if we're going to do the traditional mass in Latin, uh, it'll go an hour and a half, two hours sometimes mm -hmm. if it's a major feast. And these little kids are there absorbing it. Now, I know that for them, their minds are going to drift because ours do too, certainly, right? Certainly. Uh, but they learn how to acclimate to that. Hmm. And the teachers will tell us these kids can concentrate more in the classroom because their day begins not with all this yeah. distraction. Mm -hmm. They're calmer and can approach things in a yeah. calmer way. I think I remember reading something by Simone Weil where she spoke about true education as kind of a preparation for the gospel well, because it, it was a it was a sitting still before an idea or a truth, which in some ways is the attitude of prayer. Yes. It's just exactly. opening our reason, not only to what our reason can reason to, but to opening our reason to what God has disclosed exactly. to us. Well, the whole, but it's the model of that receptivity right. of reason to exactly. reality. Now, of course, the new divine reality, the great gift. Right. But that's wonderful to hear. No, the whole of classical education is this preparation of the contemplation of mm -hmm. the philosophical reality that confronts uh, humanity. Yeah. It's also fascinating. I remember uh, St. Basil the Great in the fourth century uh, has uh, an, uh, an essay, well, not an essay, but, you know, like a, um, something he, a letter he wrote probably on uh, the education of young Christian men. And in partly you had these schools in Alexandria and other places where you were teaching pagan learning. And so the question is now that we've become Christian, how do we educate young Christians? And one of the things he says there is he says, actually, we, we ought to go back and read uh, the Gre Greco-Roman you know, heroes and stories, uh, especially there in the Greek context. And he even says we should go back and read Homer. Mm -hmm. And he says, in Homer, we're often going to, he says, the virtues to which Paul, St. Paul, exhorts us are often illustrated in Homer. Yeah. So you can think about uh, even we were talking a little bit earlier about the Iliad. You begin with the Iliad and you think about Achille, the wrath, the anger of Achilles, the rage of Achilles, the destruction that happens to Achilles, to the Greeks. Patroclus is his best friend's death. So many who die because Achilles can't let go of his resentment, mm -hmm. right? And so you see kind of like, oh, what happens when virtue isn't present? And then you see the fidelity, the different things of like, um, you know, Odysseus's journey home, he could stay married to a goddess, mm -hmm. but instead he wishes to come home, right, to his mm -hmm. aging wife, mm -hmm. uh, right, and has that journey home. Right? Again, it's not that we're going to see all the virtues correctly displayed, yeah. but we're going to see some of the kind of courage that we're going to need for how do we journey home. And I just think yeah. it's wonderful to see that that tradition that we're recovering today is partly what the Catholic world has always done yeah. in response to these uh, well, in the wisdom of the ancients. The prologue yeah. of John's Gospel, it, mm -hmm. um, it says that Christ is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So there is, the, the light was there in mm -hmm. the pagan hearts, 
what what yeah. needed to have occur was this refinement of it. Or Pope Benedict, in one of his encyclicals, speaks of eros, mm-hmm. and the Christianity does not reject eros. Yeah. It it lifts it higher, mm-hmm. it points it to a higher end than just the material. And I think this is. This is the classic mind yeah. at work, and it's really I love that because eros there is um, like the is love. It's yeah. actually desire. It's yes. trying to awaken. Education is pulling out of students educare right. love their right. desires, right. and when we can, um, you know, elicit those desires and kind of attract them mm-hmm. in a slow way, at least if nothing else, through our own love. Mm-hmm. Of, of, of something greater. Father, I wanted to ask you a few questions uh, briefly as we uh, fin- as we come close to finishing. Uh, so uh, first, just uh, what's a book you're reading? Uh, just right now, uh, you know, I usually have two or three books that I'm, sure, just I'm reading one. through. Well, the, yeah. one, the one I'm reading now is George Weigel's book on the Second Vatican Council, hmm. uh, which I uh, really find helpful. I mean, Unlike a lot of seminarians of my era, I have actually read the documents of the Second Vatican Council. <laughs> yes. um, and what he does in this book is give the backdrop to the debates. And, um, of course, I was particularly interested in the whole um, uh, dignitatis humanae, the religious freedom, but also the um, the, the document on sacrosanctum concilium, concilium yeah. uh, on the liturgy. On the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why his best part of that chapter, though, is a long footnote. It's probably the longest footnote in the book. <laughs> I think he was avoiding all the uh, liturgy wars yes. right now. But what he says about it and the background of it is very helpful. So, I, What's the name of that book? Uh, oh, gosh. No worries. It's kind of it's Vatican II. But, <laughs> yes. um, George Weigel and Vatican II. That's, yeah, that's terrific. Thinking about the, the hermeneutical key of the whole thing is mm-hmm. what did Pope John intend? Mm-hmm by the council. He starts there and he reads sure. everything through yeah. that hermeneutic. Well, that's a great, and yeah, then there's some great, uh, right? I think his opening speech to the council is- That's it, yeah. Is, 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 is classic. You know, right there, you can still <laughs> you look it up quite, on, yeah, that's a yes. great one. So secondly, uh, what's a practice, you know, that uh, you, you do every day to help you draw closer to God that you'd like to share with our listeners? In addition to the mass and prayer? <laughs> well, that's a if yeah. Or talk about maybe how do you approach the mass and prayer? Um, my general habit, depending on the day, because sometimes I'll have a mass outside of my home, but okay. if, if I'm in my home, I have a chapel in my home. I'm retired now, so I'm living alone with two dogs, and, <laughs> uh, Theophilus and Barnabas. Um, Love it. I have to keep them out of the chapel because they, uh, well, <laughs> keep them out of the chapel. But... Um, I like to begin with um, the divine office. Of course, mm-hmm. every priest is obligated to the divine office. In a way, we're not obligated to the mass, interestingly enough. A lot of people don't realize that. The priest isn't obligated to say uh, the mass every day, but he is obligated to say his divine mm-hmm. office. So I, I do a one or two hours of the office there. By that, I don't mean 60 minutes, mm-hmm. but the, the sections of the office. Yes. And what I try to do is slow it down so that especially when I come to the end part where it's between the petitions that are provided in the bravery and the Our Father, that I, I have a, a period of bringing in, I, I use my imagination to bring in all of the people with whom I've had contact. And, you know, yeah. a priest, I suppose any of us get requested to pray for people mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. And so I try and almost literally gather them. And in praying for the dead, uh, which we do at Mass, of course, but also in in this uh, in the Divine Office, um, I go through all the people I've loved and mm-hmm. lost. I go through circumstances that I have no personal connection to, but where people are grieving mm-hmm. and have lost loved ones. And I go back down through my ancestries because I've done some mm-hmm. genealogy work. I've offered mass for each of my ancestors that I found. Uh-huh. I thought if the Mormons can baptize the dead, <laughs> I can offer mass for my, you know, four or 500 years ago, yeah. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then of course, I, and this I urge on, on everyone, is an examination of conscience every day, even if it's simple. Mm-hmm. Just what have I done that I shouldn't have done and what have I left undone that I ought to have done? And that mm-hmm. makes for a more fruitful 
regular um, that's great yeah confession. it leads right into the um the right at the beginning of math right. which is the recognition the video, yes. of our faults yeah. so uh final question what's a um what's a falsehood that you believed about god um that harmed you and what was the truth you discovered that's a good question i wish you had told me you were going to ask it i could have thought more profoundly but um if, if I think about my maturation as a Christian mm-hmm. from when I was a child to the present moment, mm-hmm. is that, um, how would I distill this? God isn't the greatest magician. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do things yes or no, right or wrong, left or right, or you're going to be this. This is your vocation, you know, right at the beginning. I think God... You know, uh, Hopkins says that um, that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It yeah. will shine forth like, it will break forth like shining from shook foil. I, I think God is so much more imminently present mm-hmm. uh, in His creation that that affects our vocation and what God wants for us. That it isn't this or that, but that there's this spectrum of things of what will perfect us. I, I guess my understanding of God and even eternal judgment is much more, much less simplistic. Mm-hmm. Let me put it that way. And yet, on and another way of thinking, it's utterly simple. <laughs> you know, because in the end, it's yeah. the embrace mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. God. Yeah, recognizing the uh, right that the Creator is always already present in his creation exactly right and it's only in a way our confusion or our rebellion that creates kind of this wedge between our created that's augustine isn't it you know uh, Mm -hmm. long have i loved thee oh beauty ever ancient ever new that Mm -hmm. i I want that on my tombstone because Uh, that's my life yeah i I was very confused early on Mm -hmm. about who god was and who i was in relationship to god and it, it took a while. Truth be told, it's probably still taking a while, but yeah. I don't see it now. <laughs> wow. In uh, the way you see it in retrospect. That's really wonderful. So, well, Father Sirico, thank you so much for uh, being on our show. Uh, your new uh, St. John Henry Newman Institute yes. uh, for classical education and reverent liturgy. Uh, for folks who are interested in learning more about that, uh, your website. new website is uh, jhni. It's just John Henry Newman Institute, jhni.org. .org. And it's, it, it, keep coming back because we're, we're adding things to it as I speak. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.